it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have episode 219, and we're going to answer a couple of great listener questions we got recently. So I'm going to go ahead and start without any further ado. So I have, hello, Andrew. I've been binging your podcast for some months now, learning a lot and really enjoying it. I would like to better understand how companies benefit directly and indirectly from a higher stock price and market cap. Shareholders obviously gain from higher prices, but I'm only vaguely aware of how other companies or I'm sorry, of other ways the company entities themselves can benefit, such as the ability to raise funds by issuing new shares, diluting existing shareholders. My understanding is that Tesla, for example, has a competitive advantage at present because Elon can issue shares at a very high price, raising a larger sum of money through the same or less significant relative dilution than, say, Ford or any other car manufacturers can at their smaller market caps. But if a company isn't planning to raise by dilution, how else does it benefit from a higher or rising stock price? This stems from my thoughts about it. If a company doesn't actually hold its own shares, it's not directly gaining in capital gains when the price rises. My understanding of buybacks is that the shares brought back are typically destroyed, giving existing shareholders an increased concentration. If the company doesn't hold ownership of a proportion of own shares, then it has none to sell into a raising price. I think this would be a great topic for an episode of the podcast. We agree. I don't recall this being covered in detail before. Thanks for consistently excellent work on this enjoyable and educational podcast, Dave. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Dave's really, really good question? It is a very good question. And I think he's hit the nail on the head with a lot of these points. So maybe we just back up and try to like summarize all of it almost in a back to the basics kind of style. So you have the shares and you have the business and it's good to differentiate the two. So the shares that are sold in the stock market, those represent ownership of a business. So think of it like a pie. If we split the pie into eight pieces and Dave and I each took a slice of that pie, we each have one eighth of the ownership of that business. Now, when a company issues more shares, which is called dilution, 
you're basically taking that same company and splitting it into more slices of a pie. So where maybe we had eight slices before, if we sliced it up again to make 16 slices, that one share, which used to be worth one-eighth to me, if we were to dilute it, now it's only worth one-sixteenth of the business because we gave up more of the company by allowing more people to buy shares. But you know that could be good for me because if the extra money that the company raised from diluting those shares made the company more valuable, then I'd rather have one-sixteenth of a more valuable business than one-eighth of a not-so-valuable business. So that's kind of that's how the whole diluting thing works. If if you're kind of new to the investing thing, that's that's how it works. Now, do you have anything to add before I? No, I, that, that I think that covers the dilution nicely. Okay, cool. So the next thing would be all right. Once you get to a certain size, what's the advantage of doing that? Because at a certain point, that's why companies go to the stock market. They go to basically sell pieces of their business so that. The previous owners can basically cash out. That's one thing. The second thing is is usually when you're in the stock market, you have a lot more resources, so you can expand a lot, and you get like economies of scale. So if we have a hundred factories, we can be a lot more efficient with our costs than if we had one factory. And so for a company like Tesla is a great example because they were not profitable, not one bit, and they were subsidized by the government a lot, but. Elon was mad. He was a magician in being able to basically dilute the company to raise a bunch of capital to now where they are very close to profitable, if not profitable. And, you know, maybe if not on a earnings basis, on a cash flow basis. But that's what they did. If you look through their financials over the years, there's different ways to, we won't get into the specifics of convertible debt, but that's basically how they did it. So it wasn't a straight up share issuance, but, but, it had aspects of that which is which diluted the shares. So the question becomes is there you know what what's the benefit to the company of having a higher share price if they're not going to dilute? And so that's what you will see Dave and I have talked about the life cycle of companies in the past. They start small. They grow very fast. They oftentimes dilute. So they're they're taking advantage of all the capital, right? And and kind of splitting up the business and growing in that way at a certain point they mature and then they almost like flip they almost do a 180 where instead of bring in capital they start to buy back shares which is the exact opposite of this whole dilution discussion what that means is they take the profits that the business has earned and they buy back the shares so now if if we go back to my pie i had a 116th slice if the company took all the profits from that year and they bought back shares now now this the pie is back to eight slices. So my one share is now one eighth of the business instead of one sixteenth. That's great for me because as long as the business is just as valuable, then my piece of that business has become much more valuable. And that's what the buybacks do. And that's why you see earnings per share go up and all of those great metrics. So once a company like Tesla is kind of on that where, you know, are they still going to dilute or are they going to buy back shares? What's the advantage? I think I think Dave, the guy who asked the question here, I think he's kind of spot on in the sense that like there are some ancillary benefits to having a, a high stock price. People want to come work for you 
And in some businesses, that's a huge advantage. A lot of times the talent can can drive the bus for these companies. So, you know, customers could get more excited about you because they see your stock price higher. It's almost like free press in a way when your stock price does good. But outside of that, yeah, if you're not diluting, you're not getting a direct benefit in the same way that Tesla got when they were first starting out, where this this dilution was like their lifeblood and they needed it to pay the bills. Now it's not so much because they're essentially profitable. And so that competitive advantage, if you want to call it that, kind of goes away. But I don't think it goes away completely because there are a lot of other side benefits to having a high stock price. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Yeah, those are those are great points. And those are great examples of, of some of the ways that a company can benefit. I think if we back up for just a second and maybe explain why Dave is asking this question, one of the things that any public company needs to grow is capital. And Andrew did a great job of, of explaining why a company would go public. And a big reason why is to to raise capital. And young companies like Tesla, even though they've been around for 12, 13, 14 years, whatever it is, is still 
relatively a young company in the market. And they use the money that we investors give to them as a way of capital of they can use to grow the company, whether that's building more factories, hiring more engineers, you know, buying the equipment they need to modernize their production line, whatever it may be. And they use all that capital, that cash, the money to do all those things. And that's the only way that the company can grow. And if they're not doing those things, then a company like Tesla, Ford, GM, whoever is not going to be able to grow. So that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it, there's several other ways. The other way to do it is, of course, is through the operations of the business. So if the company is a profitable company and it's generating cash flow, in other words, it's making money on its money, then it could use that cash flow as a way of reinvesting in the company or buying all these things that we were just talking about. They also can go to the capital markets and they can borrow money so they can issue bonds to shareholders, stockholders, and those people can invest in the debt of the company. And that is a way to raise money. And typically that is a cheaper way to do it than using equity. So when I talk about equity, what I'm really talking about is a share of Tesla. So the share of Tesla is more expensive for Tesla than it is for them to issue debt most of the time. Now, Tesla is a bit of an interesting dichotomy because it, like Andrew said, it's it's just now starting to become a profitable company. So it'll be interesting to see if the I guess the narrative around the company changes a little bit because now it's not a, now it's a profitable company. So the expectations are going to be different. So that's one thing. But then there's also the, the fact that prior to it becoming profitable, it did have debt that it issued and it was at what they call in the bond market, junk level debt. And so it was. It was debt that was very risky for people to invest in, but they also had to pay a higher price to invest in that, that debt. So they had to pay a bigger dividend to bondholders to encourage them to invest in Tesla's debt. So it may not have been as big of a, a disparity. For example, if you look at in investing in Microsoft, a very profitable company, huge market cap, you know, very, very successful business. If you look at investing buying equity of of Microsoft versus the buying the debt of Microsoft there's going to be a wide disparity in the cost of those because test or I'm sorry Microsoft is one of the few companies that has a better credit rating than the United States government and so their debt is very cheap and so it's actually cheaper for Microsoft to raise money by offering debt than it is to sell its shares. And so that would be, that would lead a company like Microsoft to not want to dilute like Andrew was talking about earlier, because it's more expensive for the company to do that than it is to offer debt. And if they need the money, Microsoft's maybe not the greatest example because they generate so much cash flow, they don't really have to to offer a, a debt offering to to raise money for the company, but it it just shows that there's lots of different ways to to slice the pie or to slice the pizza, as I'd like to say. And there's a lot of different ways that a company can go. So when a company is talking about wh- when they're looking at a high share price or a high market cap, that really gives them 
options of how they want to reinvest in their business. And make no mistake, it doesn't matter what business is out there, they all have to reinvest at some point at some level. Even companies as amazing and you know almost run themselves like Visa or MasterCard, they still have to reinvest in their business. And if they don't, eventually competitors will catch up and they'll die. And so like Andrew was saying about kind of the the evolution of the life cycle, if you're not ahead you're behind <laughs> and it's really hard to catch up. And so I guess another thing that I was thinking about why Andrew was talking about this, another advantage to having a high share price is it encourages more investment in equity in the business. And if the company wants to dilute its shares, a higher market price is going to give them more options to it's going to give them higher higher equity to be able to invest, to use that money to turn around to reinvest in the company. And it also attracts more investment. So I think probably more people jumped on the Tesla bandwagon over the last year and a half than probably had invested in the company in totality in the previous 12 years. So as the share price went up, more and more people wanted to partake in what was going on with Tesla. And that in turn helped drive up the price. And it just kind of became this, you know, self-inducing, self-reinforcing ladder that helped the price go up. And so those are all advantages, I think, to a share price increasing. And I think Andrew kind of laid out the dilution aspect of it and the other aspects, I think, really well. There is a book written by George Soros called The Alchemy of Finance. He talked about this theory of reflexivity, and it kind of perfectly illustrates what you're talking about, how the success self-perpetuates on itself. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's a lot of great benefits to a company stock price going up most of the time. And sometimes you can't always see it, and sometimes it's not always logical, but that, that flywheel kind of gets going, and you get stories like Tesla where success begets success. And that, that can be a cool thing that you see when you invest in companies. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really can. And you know, it, it's kind of interesting just looking really quickly at the, the financials of the company, you can see that the company is diluting and it has been diluting since 2017. That's as far back as I can see with this quick look here. So they've gone from 830 million shares to 1.1 billion shares in the last five or six years. So they have been diluting along the way. And, but you can also see that the net income or the earnings, the, the, the money that the company has make has gone from a negative 1.9 uh, billion to a positive 5.5 billion. So, I mean, that's, that's a very encouraging sign for sure. So yes, I can actually say something positive about Tesla from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get used to it though, folks. Don't get used to it. <laughs> that's All right. All right. I'm going to move us on to the next question. All right. Record this, right? Like, Take this down in in the history of our podcast. <laughs> they said something the first positive. and the last time. <laughs> yep. Don't get used to it. All right. The next question. Hey guys, I just started investing, and this thought always pops into my head. I want to run it by you as a strategy, one of many for investing. I think many stocks are overvalued now. So what I've been doing is finding what I think a good price is, and deciding if I want to pay the currently cheaper but still inflated price. If yes, I buy. If no, I think, why not just limit order at a price I think it's worth? If it doesn't hit that price, okay. I thought it was too overvalued anyway. And heck, there's a lot of stocks out there. I'll just find another one. If it hits the price, woohoo. So I've been thinking of this, not really doing it. What do you think? Nothing to lose, right? As long as I don't let get away from me the stocks I think are going to take off. 
so grateful for your podcast. It's super helpful. Thanks for all that you do, Brent. And then he says, Kobe, Japan, just so you know how far your reach is. Isn't that amazing? Kobe, Japan. That's just nuts. Yeah. You think about it, that somebody in, in Kobe, Japan is listening to you know, our little podcast. It just kind of blows me away. <laughs> so this is a really interesting question, Brent. And you know, I, I'll admit I don't, this is not a feature of investing that I use. And so I'm not entirely sure how that works. Do you, are you familiar with this? Yeah. So like, let's say Microsoft's trading at 310 and we wanted to buy it at 280. You could set a limit order in the market to say, basically buy this stock when it hits 280. And so if, if Microsoft stays at 300, 310, it's not going to buy. And then as soon as it drops down to 280, then your broker is going to execute. And that's basically how a limit order on the buy side works. Okay. And so is there is there a cost to doing this? No. No, no cost. Okay. So next question then is, is there a time limit on how long you can set the, the limit order? Generally, they default at that day where oh, at okay. the end of the day it cancels, but you can make an option to say, keep this order open until I cancel it. Okay. And so you're, you're, you'll, you know, if you go, or, you know, there's no such thing as a ticker tape anymore, right? It's all right, electronic, yeah. but if you're able to go and you could look and you could see your open order, wherever they store all the orders, you would be able to see that, you know, you put in an order here for this price. And, and so it would just be a matter of waiting until it got executed, if it ever did get executed. Okay. So I, in theory, it's probably not a bad idea. I guess the the two things that pop into my head about this kind of idea is number one, you'd have to determine ahead of time what you think companies are overvalued and where you think the price could drop to. Now we have seen some pretty substantial market fluctuations on particular companies. I know Robinhood recently went from, I think 20% down to 21% up in a day. So, you know, there's, there's been, I know there's been some pretty wild swings. So I guess determining that would be interesting. And then I guess you would also have to do some research on whether you think the company is going to go up or not from the time that you buy it. And, you know, I, in theory, I think it's not a bad idea. I think the better idea is to do the research to find the companies that are undervalued and use that as a way of trying to find good investments at that time. I mean, there are some companies I think you have to do a lot of research on to determine whether it's cheap or not. Google, Microsoft, Visa, MasterCard, Costco, these are all undeniably fantastic companies, but you could argue that some of them are overpriced. You could argue some of them are underpriced depending on where you sit on the, on the, on the timeline. And, you know, I was just looking at Costco, for example, and you look at everything and it's, you know, everything looks great, but then you look at the price and you think, and I'm not talking about the, the, the actual physical price. I'm talking about the, the, the intrinsic value, what I think is a fair price to pay for a company like Costco. And it can appear to be expensive, but then that comes, then that whole, what are you willing to pay for a good company over a long period of time. And that's where, that's where it gets a little dicey. I guess I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, Andrew. 
lots of thoughts. I'll, I'll try to organize them somewhat. Okay. First, I like where Brent's head's at. I think it's super, super good idea to stick to where you think a company's a fair price. So if if it's not at your fair price, don't compromise the morals of your valuation just because you really love a company. And I like how he also mentioned that, you know what, there's lots of other stocks out there. So if I'm not seeing what I want to see, that's all right. And and that's very important too. You don't fall in love with a business just because you think it's the best business in the world. The price matters as well. And you want to stick to that. I think those are super, super key things to to hone in on as an investor. And if you can master it as a beginner, like you're going to go good places, I think. The only problem now that I see with this kind of a strategy implementing the the nuts and bolts of it is just think about this. So like what what are you losing and what are you gaining from this? So, you know, we're gaining let's say 5%, 10%, you know, if we, if we see a stock where it's 5% or 10% overvalued and we're waiting for it to drop down to that, you know, that's something where we'd be gaining if if the strategy is winning. If we're talking about stocks that are like 25, 50% overvalued, do you really want to lock up your money? Because when you put that limit order in, you can't do anything else with that money. So it's not being invested. It's just sitting there. So do you really want to lock up your money for something that where the stock might not crash for a long time? So then, so there's that factor. I mean, if you look at, I'm going on a little bit of tangent. I'll come back. If you look at like the probabilities of the stock market, there's more days that you have green than you have red. And so if you're going to wait for days where the market is red, that's a less than 50-50 chance. So you're you're kind of waiting on a less than 50-50 chance. So the odds are stacked against you if you're waiting for stocks to come down. We'll say that. I'm not talking about next year. I'm not talking about the next three years. I'm talking about 10-year, 20-year period. Less than 50-50 chance that the stocks are going to go down. Where I get really worried about it, though, is... Let's say you find the best business that you could, and you were right. It, it continues being a super great business. Chances are it's not going to dip to where you want it. And so imagine missing out on a stock where it doubled and you didn't, you didn't pull the trigger because you were waiting for it to come down. So, you know, you, I'm not saying if it was like super overvalued, I'm just saying, if you're in this like gray area of like, okay, it's 5% overvalued, sh- should I pull the trigger or not? I would have rather put the money somewhere where I think it's a fair value versus having the money sit waiting for the market to come down. The market could never come down. Y- you can look at how many all-time highs we've had and it's there are a lot of places where the market never comes down. You could be waiting for 5, 10 years for it to ever come down or it could never come down to that point. So I don't like the idea of having money sit where it's not being invested, it's not working for you, and you're waiting for the odds, which are not in your favor, for the market to go down or that stock to go down until you can deploy it. That's my issue. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. The I guess the the time cost of money that you tie that up, you could have been using to invest in something else along the way. And I like 
I, I agree. I like where, where, where Brent's head is with this. And if he's doing the research to define, define companies that he thinks are undervalued and he's willing to wait and it, it kind of appears that he is, you know, his attitude is, is right. It's, you know, there are plenty of other companies out there that you can, that you can take a stab at. And the other thing is when you think about doing the research to find, trying to find a company you, you want to invest in, even if you do find a company that is worthwhile, but for whatever reason, the price is not the one you want, that research or that time spent is not wasted because at some point the company will come to a place where you have an opportunity to buy it. And it may not be tomorrow. It may be a year from now and maybe three years from now, but the work that you've done to learn about that company will stay with you. And the, the knowledge that you learned learning about that company compounds. And the more that you do that, the more practice you get, the better you'll get at it. And the more comfortable you'll feel with all these things. And the quicker turnaround it may be on being able to buy PayPal at a generational price or whatever it may be. Sometimes the company just doesn't come down and it just goes up and to the right. And there's just nothing you can do about it. And it is what it is. And I, I was reading recently that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett were, are both still kicking themselves for not buying Google when it IPO'd all those years ago, because it was, as they said, in hindsight, it's obvious to just about anybody that was paying attention that it was an outstanding business and had a chance to be one of the best ever. And they passed on it. For whatever reason, they, they chose not to, to, to take in advantage of it and they're still waiting and <laughs> they may wait forever. Who knows? So I'm not, it's not investing advice and it's not a recommendation to go out and buy Google at any price. But I guess my point is, is that sometimes there just may, there may be companies you just have to, you might have to wait and you just might have missed. And that's okay because there's lots of other great opportunities out there that you can get invested in and that can make you tons of money without having to, you know, buy the greatest company ever, whichever that could be. Yeah, good good example on Buffett. I mean, he didn't get Google right, but he got Apple right, and he got Apple very right. And how many investors can say they got Apple right? So you don't have mm-hmm. to get Apple, Google, Microsoft. You don't have to get all of them right. You just have to get maybe one or two of them right, and it can make you extraordinarily wealthy, you know, even mm-hmm. compared to the market. And, you know, that's what we're shooting for here. We're not shooting for perfect people we're actually no. perfect attendance it's not what no. we're looking for if no. that's what you want good luck right exactly and th- there's lots of there's lots of data out there that show uh, that you don't have to you don't have to swing at every pitch and we've talked about that in the past uh, going back to the our favorite baseball analogies you don't have to swing at every pitch and just because you do some research or you find a company that you really like, but you start digging into it and you discover that maybe that's not the best option, you don't have to swing. You don't have to take a, a flyer on it. You could just go, okay, too hard pile and move on. And that's okay. There are times where I have tried to learn about internet security or something more technically complicated like that. And I start digging into the business. So I'm nope. I just, I don't, I don't understand that. And, and that's okay. There's lots of other things out there that I can invest in. And even though I may think that that's going to be something that could be very beneficial and do very, very well over the next five, 10 years, it's not something that I can understand and I can move on. I'm okay with that. There's plenty of other stuff out there that I do understand and I'm willing to take a look at and work on, and I don't have to swing at every pitch that comes my way. Yeah. Well said. 
All right, folks. Well, with that, we are going to go wrap up our discussion for this evening. I wanted to mention that if there is anything in the podcast today that we've talked about that may be a little confusing or maybe you're not quite sure on the terms on, we have a website, investingforbeginners.com, that is for you. There's lots of great resources, articles, lots of great stuff, videos, all kinds of things that can help you learn about the basics of the stock market and everything beyond that. And so if you're if you're struggling with some of the terminology or things like that, go to einvestingforbeginners.com, look for the search bar, search that topic, and you'll find something that'll help you learn more about what we discussed today. And with that, with that, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.